Well, Walt Disney is one of the most creative people possibly that's, that's ever lived, one could argue. The characters that he developed and came up with, uh, the ideas that he had for his theme parks, first Disneyland out in Southern California. And he was in the planning stages at his death in the 1960s, was in the planning stages for his next big venture, which, of course, we know now as Disney World in the Orlando, Florida area. And I remember hearing the story years ago that uh, Walt Disney was flying uh, in the 60s over central Florida looking for a place to put his new theme park on the other side of the country. And he saw all those vast amounts of land in central Florida. And so he gets back to California and then he advises his people, I want you to go to California and start buying up land. He says, but don't go in there wearing suits and ties. He said, no. He said, I want you to, don't, don't carry a briefcase. He said, I want you to wear bib overalls. And he said, I want you to carry the check in the bib pocket of your overalls. And so no telling how many of his employees had to go out and find some bib overalls in Southern California. Uh, but, uh, but he did that because he, he knew that if you show up in, in coats and ties and carrying briefcases, that's going to do what? It's going to drive the price up. And so he sends people in, and this is just part of the man's creativity and his understanding of people. So he sends his team in, and they start going around and, and buying up land in, uh, in, in uh, central Florida. And he is in the planning stages of two parks when, that were going to open, one being Epcot, which gives people kind of a little tour of the world. But then the other being that was going to be the main theme park, a larger version of what they had in California, but the Magic Kingdom. And you wonder, of all the things they could have called it, why did he call it that? Magic Kingdom. And it's because he wanted people upon their arrival to feel enchanted. He wanted them to feel transported to another place. And we continue our series this morning on the way of Jesus. We opened last week with Jesus and the children and looked at how Jesus taught us that the way we welcome children is the way we would welcome our Savior Himself. And now today, looking at another aspect of Jesus' ministry, Jesus and the kingdom of God. Kingdom is something that Jesus talks about many times in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, in our Wednesday night class, we started just a few weeks ago with a study of Mark's Gospel. And had not studied a Gospel in a while in that class. And so, studying Mark's Gospel... We notice that it's right there in chapter 1 that Jesus is proclaiming, as John had before him, get ready because the kingdom of God is coming. And John declares that, hey, I'm just the one who's announcing the arrival, the one's coming after me, and I'm not fit to even, even tie his sandals. 
And, and then Jesus arrives and then says the very same thing, that the kingdom of God has come near. It's time to repent of your sins. In other words, what Jesus is declaring there and really offering is an invitation. He's offering this invitation that, hey, the kingdom has arrived. If you'll just repent of your sins, you can take advantage of the kingdom. And so, let's look for just a little bit in uh, Matthew chapter 13. I want us to begin uh, with verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Quoting Psalm 78 uh, verse 2 according to my footnote there. And so Jesus as he would often do, he takes advantage of a moment with the crowd that was on hand. And he sits down and he starts teaching them. And he's teaching them in parables. And you might wonder, well, why the, why the parables? We know parables to be these stories that really, that really have multiple layers to them. But we have to understand that there were a lot of people who would show up to hear Jesus teach or to hear, you know, see what was going on wherever Jesus might be. And they weren't really showing up to be transformed. They weren't really showing up for what they could get from Jesus in the sense of his teaching, his preaching. A lot of them were showing up, as was mentioned this past Wednesday night in our study of Mark. They were there for the show. That word gets around that, hey, there's this guy who is healing people. The blind can see and the lame can walk and, oh my goodness, this guy is doing some amazing things. And so people show up, many of them, for this transaction, you might say. I don't feel good. I've got a bad leg. I've got a bad knee. I've got a bad hip. I've got whatever. And they want to see what Jesus can do for them. And some are just there for the show. Are there going to be any Pharisees? It got to the point where, you know, are there going to be any Pharisees that are going to be there to challenge him? Because, boy, sometimes people just love a good fight in public, you know. Some people just cringe at the idea of conflict, and some people think, man, I can't believe this was free. 
And so there are people that are just showing up for the show. And Jesus knows that. And so he decides. You know, for the ones that are just showing up for the show, they're just there for the free stuff, so to speak. There's not going to be much for them. Because they're going to be hearing and not understanding. But for the ones whose heart is in the right place, for the ones who really want to understand what it is that I'm about, he knows they're about to hear about the kingdom. The kingdom, Jesus says, that I'm offering them. And so then he gives us this example, the kingdom of heaven. And incidentally, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they're interchangeable. It all means the same thing. But this kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's really tiny. Now, people have debated over the years, as people will, well, as it turns out, the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed known to humankind. Or as it turns out, you know, it's not really a tree that the mustard seed produces. It's more like a big shrub. But the point is that when you're talking about the kingdom of heaven, church family, that which is tiny can grow to be vastly larger. That we, as individuals, can grow to be vastly larger. That something as small as a mustard seed can grow into something way, 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 so many times beyond that original size. That in the kingdom of heaven, that which is initially inconspicuous can become something that is mighty. And then he goes on to say, and now you've got a woman. She's in her kitchen. And she's kneading that dough. And then he says that, how how much has she got that she's working with there? 60 pounds. Who needs 60 pounds of dough? Who needs that much flour, right? It's one of these times where Jesus throws something out there that's just so over the top. It's like 60 pounds. That would feed well over 100 people. But the point isn't how many people are going to be fed. The point is the kingdom of heaven is like, fill in the blank, something that goes way beyond daily comparison. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is so beyond our understanding that it's not even measurable by typical everyday human standards. Now let's think about that for a minute, church. Because every once in a while, I come back to this thing that, well, what is all this about? What is God really about? What do we really understand about God? Well, I praise Him that in our limited human capacity, 
we'll never understand Him. And while some people are bothered by that, because they keep looking for proof, and I keep saying, no, there's never going to be proof, because proof negates the need for what, church? Faith. And so, the people that are looking for proof are going to be disappointed. The people that want to fully understand God or bless them, those people that think they already have God figured out, boy, are they in for a rude awakening. Because God does not allow us to put Him in a box. That God is beyond our understanding. And therefore, His kingdom is beyond our full grasp. And that's what Jesus is trying to say there. Telling this story about uh, something tiny that becomes something much larger. Telling a story to this crowd that's gathered about something that is everyday typical life. But wait a second, there's a problem with that story. Some in the crowd notice. Nobody is going to be needing that much dough. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Because the kingdom is beyond our full grasp. It's beyond everyday comparison. Now, I want to look down at uh, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, understand, anything that is found in a field, for example would belong to the owner of that field. So you're out one day and you're plowing the field. And then all of a sudden, kathunk. What was that? Well, looky there. Looks like previous owner buried something. I know who that previous owner was. Pretty wealthy fella. Ain't no telling what's buried in this field. But he gathers up everything he has that is of reasonable value that can be sold. And so then he goes and he sells it all. Saying it's all for sale except, you know, the family and the dog. Right? Okay, just gathers up anything he has that is possible value. And is willing to sell it all and have nothing. But he's got the money that it brought. And what is that church? It's enough to go and buy that field. Because that guy feels like it's worth taking the chance. That everything I have in this earthly life right now is going to pale in comparison to the treasure that I'm going to dig up in that field. And so, yes, 
Is there a cost of following Jesus on this side of glory? Absolutely there is. Remember what Jesus says in John 16. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He tells us. He tells us we're going to have trouble. There are going to be ailments. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be disappointment. There are going to be trials. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so the cost of our discipleship, the things that we give up, pale in comparison to the value of the treasure of the kingdom. The worker who takes the proceeds from his earthly possessions, whatever they brought, goes and buys that field and he digs it up. And then he says, Woohoo! Look at that! That's amazing! And, church, I got to believe that on that day of days, that when we are allowed to enter into our eternal reward, that we're going to be the ones going, Woohoo! is amazing. I truly believe there is nothing on this earth that prepares us that prepares us for God's glory, for God's eternal kingdom. And Jesus wants people to know that there's an advantage of the kingdom now. That there is an advantage to being at peace. When he teaches, teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that, hey, don't be worrying. Don't be, don't be overly anxious. It's going to be okay. If you've watched TV this week, how many documentaries how many different uh, commemorative episodes of news programs have there been about 9-11? And of course, one thing that they've been talking about is now a generation of people have been born since then. Barrett was alive at 9-11, but I think he was maybe all of four years old. And I remember when I think it was 50-something people were killed in Paris several years ago. I remember going to visit Barrett at Harding and him getting in the car. We met outside his dorm and he got in the car and we were headed where else to go eat. And, and I remember Barrett saying, is this what 9-11 felt like? And I had to put it in perspective for him said, Barrett, this is 50 people. 9-11 was a few thousand. That 9-11 sent shockwaves around the world. That stock markets plummeted. That airlines went bankrupt. That, you know, then the list goes on and on and on. It changed airport security, best we can tell, forever. 
that maybe a flight used to be something you looked forward to, now it's something you just want to endure so you can get safely to your destination a whole lot quicker than driving. And so yes, we've been reminded this week, because Stacy and I uh, sat down to watch some TV last night for an hour or so after supper. I said, let's put on that program we've been watching, that show, uh, because I said, I've been watching this all week and there's, there's nothing new to come out of this. Every one of us that was alive and old enough to remember then knows exactly where we were. And so we know what shock is like. We know that feeling of almost helplessness and despair. And I wonder how many people felt that way in December of 1941 after Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so we're reminded that these events will happen, that people left to their own devices will make choices that are very costly to others. But here we are. Here we are, aren't we? We're still a nation. We're still a people. 330 some odd million of us still alive. Yes, there have been changes. There have been setbacks. But here we are. And so, Jesus reminds us that in His kingdom we can take comfort in knowing that we're going to be cared for. It's not always going to be joyful. It's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be what we want it to be. But if it was, then it wouldn't be the fallen world that it is. And so, then Jesus turns to from the value of the kingdom, from the vastness of the kingdom, from how the inconspicuous can become mighty, And then he turns to uh, another parable. Verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And so Jesus saying that not only are there aspects of the kingdom that can be taken advantage of here and now, but then there's another aspect of the kingdom. And he points to the end of this age. This is what we call eschatology. The end of time. And so Jesus makes this sort of eschatological, big word there, pronouncement. 
that there's going to become a time when just like a fisherman says, well, this is a good one. Yeah, we're going to, that, that's a keeper right there. And then, oh, no, this one doesn't quite measure up and tosses that one back. That there is going to come a time and Jesus says we're going to send out the angels and there's going to be a harvest. And that which is counted good enters their eternal reward. And that which is unrighteous, that those, we might say, that, that never accepted Christ as Savior and made Him Lord of their life, that those are going to be deemed not worthy. And there's going to be weeping and there's going to be gnashing of teeth and there's going to be a fire. And it's the unpleasant part of all this. As it's been said, God never sends anyone to hell. He merely honors their choice. That God knows what opportunities people had to turn and accept Christ as their Savior. Back in the 1970s, a couple of Steves got together. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And uh, they developed something that the world had not seen at that point. You see, up to that point, you know, I think we've, I've mentioned this once before about the size of computers. That computers, uh, once upon a time, would take up a good chunk of a room about the size of my office it would need you would need that kind of space to house a computer once upon a time uh, just three generations ago the chairman of IBM declared that there is a world market for only five computers and that's kind of laughable isn't it and that uh, as recently as 1977, the president of Digital Equipment claimed there is no reason anyone would, would want a computer in their home. And so, uh, when Steve Jobs was just 21 years old, he and Steve Wozniak then got together and they were able to develop a computer that would sit on somebody's desk. And they took this idea to Hewlett-Packard and they took it to different companies and they basically got turned away. And so they decided, well, we're just going to sell everything we've got. And so Steve Jobs had a Volkswagen and he sold that. Steve Wozniak, I think this is hilarious, he had a calculator. You know, one guy sells a car, one guy sells a calculator. Now, if you've ever had to buy one of those expensive calculators, I think they still make those, some of those calculators that cost over 100 bucks. those Texas Instruments calculators. And I remember all the kids at Franklin County High School that were in the advanced math class, they had to have those. I never did. Okay? Uh, you know, I stopped with Algebra 2 with a little, a little bit of trig sprinkled in there, but those folks that did major trig and advanced math and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, they had, to, they had to invest, bite the bullet and invest in those calculators once upon a time. So Waz sells his calculator and Jobs sells his Volkswagen. And then that's when they founded Apple Computer and called it Apple because Steve Jobs apparently had spent a summer working in an orchard 
and had a good, uh, had fond memories of that work experience. And so, and so here they are, uh, founding Apple Computer. And uh, but but they knew that they needed a at some point a heavyweight CEO. And so Steve Jobs approaches a guy named John Scully. And so he says to Scully, now you have to understand, John Scully is the president of a company called PepsiCo. Pretty well established company. And PepsiCo not only owned Pepsi, but also owned restaurant chains like Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and places like that. I think KFC was part of that. It's later spun off, but at that time, PepsiCo is a pretty major, you know, restaurant and beverage corporation. And so Scully turns him down. And then Jobs comes back and makes him another offer, and Scully says, no thanks. You know, appreciate, you know, I'm flattered that you think so highly of, of my business acumen, but I'm not your guy. And so then finally Jobs comes back one time to Scully and he says, hey, it comes down to this. Do you want to be part of something that will change the world or do you want to sell sugared water the rest of your life? And that's when John Scully said, I think I'll be the CEO of Apple Computer. Now church... We're not in the business here of selling sugared water. But, if we're a part of the kingdom, aren't we a part of something that changes the world? Church, if we're a part of God's kingdom, aren't we a part of something that changes the world? Yeah, something that changes the world, that offers the world something that nobody else can offer. That the biggest house, the fanciest cars, the the greatest athletic ability, in 35 minutes, I'm going to be in front of my TV watching the two-tone blue as we know them. I don't know if it's going to be a good day or a bad day, but I'm not going to let the outcome affect my mood one way or the other. I'm convinced of that. But those athletes that some of them make $15, $30 million that will be on that field today, but they will never have anything without the love of Christ. That nothing this world offers compares to what God's kingdom offers. Why did Jesus talk about the kingdom so much? It's because He knew how important the kingdom was. And He wanted us to understand how important the kingdom is. Because... The kingdom produces kingdom people. And kingdom people have kingdom thoughts. And kingdom thoughts turn into kingdom love. And kingdom love turns into kingdom service. And kingdom service 
turns into making the world a better place. But it all starts with us accepting that we are a part of God's kingdom. And we can be a part of a world that says, just be happy with the sugared water. Or we can say, no, that's never going to get me where I really want to go. Because I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. And I want to be there for eternity. And in the meantime, I get the benefit of being a part of a kingdom here and now. We close today with Matthew 6.33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And He will give you everything you need. If you are with us this morning and you have not yet said that the world is not going to give me what I need, that that's only going to come from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then we offer the invitation so you can change that once and for all. If you're here this morning and you would like the prayers of this body, then we offer the invitation for that purpose as well. Steve, let's stand and sing.